Good morning to you. Welcome, of course, on a holiday weekend. Now we've got probably some guests and some visitors here, so I uh, hope you had a great time with friends and family yesterday and today, perhaps. This morning, as you can see, we're in the middle of a series called Sons and Daughters. We are in the second half of the book of Galatians, and we're looking at and seeing what a heart that's been changed by the Spirit of God looks like, and to do that, to, to see what a heart that's been changed by the Spirit of God looks like, we are hovering, in a sense, over the end of chapter 5 for this morning, the second of a three-week look at what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, sort of a familiar term if you're from a church background. Uh, we've said last week that when God comes into your life, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, He puts His seed in you, He puts His, his DNA in you, and Paul says that seed that He puts in you is going to bear fruit going to bear fruit. And so to look at one part of that fruit this morning, to, to see a, a, a piece of that, we're going to look at what the Bible calls peace, Christian peace. We'll be unpacking what Bible peace looks like in your life and by drawing on the classic Christian passage on peace, which is from Philippians chapter 4. So again, we're sort of putting a bookmark in chapter 5 and then moving over to Philippians 4. And our scripture reading this morning is going to be from both. Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things." The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that it, now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And that's God's word this morning. Uh, A few years ago, I was in the city of Manila in the Philippines. Anybody here ever been to the Philippines? few folks been to the Philippines. Yeah, I was visiting a friend's church. I was speaking at a student conference out there, and I was, I was prepared for the trip, or so I thought. I was prepared for the oppressive heat, uh, which if you've been there, you know what that's like. The heat, the, 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 the time change, drinking bottled water all the time and only. Prepared for balut, which is the local delicacy. Some of you may know what that is. Don't run out and try it all at once. Uh, but what I was not prepared for was the traffic and driving conditions, all right? Because both in the United States and in the Philippines, there are white lines and lanes, but only one country of the two actually uses them. (laughs) In the Philippines, uh, the roads and the highways are really only like massive unidirectional funnels. 
They're going one way. Funnels for vehicles that do this sort of highly fluid, you know, unregulated high-speed dance around each other. And anytime I was, I was in a car, I was always inches away from the one next to me uh, there on the roads. Braking is optional. Swerving is mandatory. And stopping at red lights is for the coward. <laughs> I actually, I lost count of the times I thought that Jesus and I would finally meet face to face there in the Philippines. Lord, I'm coming home to you. Until about the third day there when I realized two things. Number one, I hadn't seen a single accident. Not one. And the second thing I realized was this. Not only were there no accidents, I was the only nervous person on the road. No one else was phased by the screeching tires, the honking, the swerving, the blatant disregard for the lines on the ground. I was the only one sweating it. Uh, and to make matters worse, anytime there was a, a Filipino friend of mine in the car, not only were they not nervous, they were smiling and laughing the whole time, kicking back, telling jokes, which, of course, is further proof that Filipinos really are some of the most amazing people on the planet. They are really great. But let's ask, what was the difference between them and me? Well, one word, expectations. (laughs) Expectations. They expected the swerving, right? The breaking, the honking, the conflict on the road. They expected people to cut them off, get too close, and so forth. And in parts of the city, actually, I found that pickpocketing there is so common, they don't even get angry. When someone tries to steal their wallet or a purse, they sort of just shoo the pickpocket's hand away and say, you know, better luck next time, you know, nice try. <laughs> They're calm. They were calm. I was a wreck. They were poised. I had peace. What was the difference? Expectations, right? They expected the conflict. And in the same way today, especially today, you as a Christian person, which of course is the majority of us, if you don't understand what the Bible says about Christian peace, you'll always be like me in life, you know, sort of an an American in Manila. Always upset, always nervous, never at peace, constantly afraid the end is near, and terrified of what's coming next. And if today, if if that describes you, at least in part, if you're afraid of the future, rattled by anything at all in your life, and I mean anything, it's because you need to have your expectations adjusted to what life really is, as the Bible says. And dare I say it, your heart and your mind opened to what Christian peace is really all about. So let's do that. Let's look at three aspects of what Christian peace is from Philippians chapter 4. First, we're going to look at the enemy of peace, second, the anatomy of peace, or what's inside peace, or how we get it. And finally, number three, the secret of peace. That's what Paul says. He says there's a secret. Number one, let's begin here looking at the enemy of peace, all right? Here we go in Philippians 4. From the get-go, as you saw, Paul actually contrasts peace with something surprising. And by the way, if you read through the list, uh, you may notice that the, the, the fruit of the Spirit always have surprising contrast. Uh, uh, for example, the opposite of love in the Bible isn't hate. It's what? It's fear. Yeah, perfect love casts out fear. Uh, according to the Bible, the opposite of joy isn't just sadness. It's actually despair. And the opposite uh, of peace isn't war or fighting, but the opposite of peace is here in verse 6, what Paul says and calls anxiety. He says, be anxious in verse 6. Be anxious, have anxiety for nothing. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we see here that anxiety is the opposite of, or it comes to steal peace. And actually, I'm going to look at in depth what anxiety is in just a minute. But before I do that, I actually want to define Christian peace just for a moment. There's two things Christian peace is, and we see those in verse 7. It says, and the peace of God, which first surpasses all comprehension, will second guard your heart's and minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so according to this, first, number one, peace is two things. First, peace is not the absence of worry. Christian peace is not the absence of care or concern in your life, but the peace of God, it's saying, is an inner calm, an inner poise that comes on you, going beyond your even ability to understand why it's happening. And Paul shows us that in the verse of verse 11. He says, I've learned to be content in what? Whatever circumstances I am. He says, peace can come on me. I can learn it in the most difficult of moments in my life. Now that's astonishing. Here he is. A human being claiming to have peace, or that he can have peace, at every single moment. Now many of us feel rattled by all kind of stuff today, don't we? We do. We get rattled by, maybe you're nervous about, get cast down by all kind of stuff. Maybe, you, maybe your kids aren't getting in the right schools, right? It's got you nervous. Uh, maybe the meeting at work didn't go well. We've all had one of those. Maybe you're trying to deal with a struggling career or make a career change or decision. Maybe it's a fussy child. Or like me, fussy children <laughs> at multiple points. Or, or if you're like uh, I was for many years, you just can't get a date, right? And you're upset about that. Or all the dates you do get are terrible. Some of you have been there too. Maybe your friends won't quit asking you when you're going to finally meet the one, you know. And you're rattled by it, nervous. But consider Paul. Beaten, he said. Times without number. 2 Corinthians. Five times he got the 39 lashes, which is a way of uh, attaching bits of bone to leather strips and pulling off the flesh of a person's back. Five times it happened to him. Uh, The the time he had rocks thrown at his skull, he said, from point-blank range until his attackers thought he was dead. Three times shipwrecked, spent a day and a half floating in the ocean, waiting for rescue, malnourished, starving, lied about, accused, all the pressure of all the people in all the churches. And he says this, I am unshakable. I'm undefeatable. And he's not bragging here. He's not competing with you. Paul's not saying here in this verse, I've just got a natural peace talent. I got access to. Nor is he saying, man, I'm just kind of a cheery guy. You know, sort of like that TV show on Netflix, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Maybe some of you have seen that show, right? First service did not laugh at that. Second service did, proving you guys are the TV watchers. There you go. The young crowd. All right. No, he said, what about peace? I've learned it. I've learned peace. I've learned peace. He's saying the peace of God, therefore, is not a natural thing people have in their lives. It doesn't come from personality or from circumstances. It's an inner presence, he says, an inner poise you can grow in. That's encouraging. But the second thing, peace is, and that's actually an interesting word that Paul uses here. He says peace is, second, a guard. 
He says it's a guard, which is here in in the Greek, a military term that means to watch over like a a military garrison would guard a house or a, a group of people. And Paul is saying here that the peace of God works like an armed military guard in your life. And we've got to acknowledge the obvious here. The only reason a person would need a bodyguard, right? A soldier, a group of police near them 24-7 is because that person has what? An enemy, right? The only reason you'd ever hire someone to guard your house is when? When you expect someone to break in. And therefore, Paul is saying this. You need to expect an attack. You need to expect it. You need your expectations about life adjusted. Something is always going to be coming at you. Can you see this? To rob your peace, steal your peace, impoverish you spiritually. He's saying this. You better start expecting it because it's going to happen whether you like it or not. The only question is, will the guard be in place when the enemy comes? So let's ask now then, well, what is this enemy? Who is the enemy? What's the enemy of peace? What does peace protect us against? Well, Paul's already told us, we saw. It's not just natural care, natural concern. It's the word anxiety. Anxiety, which comes from a Greek word that means to be scattered into pieces like uh, an object of glass shattered on the floor and then swept across the room. It's actually a fascinating psychological insight that the Bible gives us here. Uh, And a quick case study for what this looks like, how this works, is over in the book of Luke where Jesus in the gospel of Luke, there's a story there. He's at the house of some friends for dinner. And you may know the story. And, And to a woman there, to someone who was frantically running around worried anxious to get everything prepared, and she was upset about the people not helping her, to a woman named Martha, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 10. It's the same word Paul uses. He said, it says, and Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you're what? Anxious and upset about what? Many things. See the connection there between anxiety and and the many things. Anxiety comes from a deep sense of being scattered all over the place, worried about stuff all the time. What about this? About that? The kids, the grandkids, the house, the retirement, you know, the country, right? And if you know the story about Martha, you see the kind of behavior her anxiety drove her towards because she was all over the place and worried and anxious. What did she do? It says she started lashing out against those around her who were at, actually at peace, who weren't running around like she was. She said to Jesus, what about my sister, huh? What about her? She's not living like she's supposed to be. She's not really following you. I'm the one who's running around doing stuff for you. I'm the one who should be promoted here, approved. But Jesus says, oh, Martha, can't you see? Can't you see you're the one without peace? She shouldn't be like you. You should be like her, like your sister, calm, poised, right? Can you see, church, the difference between Martha on one hand and Paul on the other? Martha, catch this, has Jesus in her house and she's scattered. Paul has nothing. His body is hanging on by a thread and he's as calm as the sea after a storm. Peace, therefore, has nothing to do with your circumstances. Nothing. You could be rich and coming apart or poor and on top of the world. What about you? What about you today? Would those around you say you are a person of peace, a person at peace? 
Or would those around you say, no, they just lash out at people around them, at the kids, right? At life, at the boss, at the husband, the spouse, the government, maybe because of a lack of peace. You say, Morgan, well, if my husband would make better decisions, I would have no reason to lash out at him. You know, that's kind of fair enough. Maybe you say, Morgan, I would have peace if the government would make better decisions. To which I would say two things. Number one, you're saying your peace comes from circumstances. To which Paul has already said, that's not how Christian peace works. See, And second, every time that Paul and the New Testament writers talk about your relationship with the government, they spend far less time complaining about it. And complaining about our government that was, by the way, literally killing them. They spend far more time living on mission and preaching to and praying for those same ones that were killing him. In other words, their faith wasn't in the government to bring them peace. It was faith that the gospel lived out and sacrificially demonstrated even to death would change the government. That's what they believed. Are you at peace today? Well, I say, maybe, maybe not. All right. Well, let's just see. How do we get it? How do we get it? How do you get Christian peace? How does it come into our lives? That brings us next to number two, what we'll call the anatomy of peace. And according to this text here in Philippians, three main ways. Hmm, A couple more in there. I can only get to three. Three main ways we can get the peace of God to grow in our lives. So let's look at these three quickly in turn. They are thinking first, thanking, and loving. And yes, I realize that last one should have begun with a TH, but I couldn't get it to fit. So two out of three ain't bad. All right. Here we go. Thinking first. First way to peace, thinking. Uh, The first way Paul says Christian peace actually comes, you get it, you grow it, is here in verses 8 and 9. And he says, a list of things with true, honorable, right, pure, whatever is lovely, excellence, worthy of praise. He says, dwell or literally think on these things over and over and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this was the most astonishing thing for me in this passage. Paul is saying that if you dwell on, if you think on, if you put in your brain and swirl around like in a blender, these things, you can have peace no matter what. You can take God up on it. So the question is then, what are the these things? What are the these things? Well, most commentators believe, especially at the front of this list, as Paul begins here, he is referring, Paul's referring to Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine, the big picture Bible stuff. Because look at what he says. Whatever is true or honorable, that word means weighty. Whatever weighs the most, the big picture stuff. Whatever is right, think on those things. Well, let's ask, what's the truest truth, right? It's God's word. What's the weightiest thing? Oh, it's God's thoughts and his presence. What's the most right thing? It's God's plans for the world. So he's saying here, think your way through Bible doctrine into peace. All right? And not only is this stunning, it's actually nothing like modern self-help stuff is going to give you. If you go into any uh, Barnes and Noble or uh, any, any half-price books uh, and you begin to go to the how or amazon.com, you look the stuff up, you go to the how to get peace section and titles, you'll notice the advice they give you, they give you always begins in another place. They always begin with techniques. Peace techniques, you know, relaxation techniques, stuff like, you should smile more. That's good advice. You should breathe deeply. I like that one. Uh, You should take a walk or stretch or go to the ocean or a quiet place. And those things are all good. I mean, I could go for some of that. That kind of sounds nice. But none of them tell you, as the Bible does, to actually get peace, that it begins with thinking. Thinking. 
Actually, no, they tell you, by contrast, to block out all your thoughts to get peace. They would never tell you that in order to get peace, you start by asking yourself, what happens to me when I die? (laughs) They would never tell you, ponder life's deepest questions and peace will be upon you, right? No, they never tell you to ponder your meaning or place in the universe. So why? Why would the Bible tell you to do that? Oh, well, let's consider what the big picture of the Bible is. The truest truth. What's honorable, what's right. It's this. That God made a perfect world. And people he loved so much. He wanted to live with them forever. But the people he made broke his world and they keep on breaking it and they, they scratch and they claw to keep him out of it. But then he came himself. That's what the New Testament claims. And he died for it and then came back to life to save you and your heart. And it says that he made you with purpose and with intent no matter what your parents did or didn't do. And no matter what they tell you, you are not an accident. That he wants to use you to help reclaim the world. And one day he's got new heavens and a new earth. And he's going to make all things new. You think that might bring you some peace? Uh, Feel better than he did 30 seconds ago? I hope so. Why? Because we're thinking out the implications of the Christian worldview. Charles Darwin said this, quote, A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who is a famous Supreme Court justice, wrote this to a friend. He says, there is no reason for attributing to a man a difference in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance. And the only reason is that it is incongruous to the world I want. The world everyone is trying to make, here's the point, according to one's own power. Of course, over the years, he's gotten a lot of heat for this. But what's he doing, really? All he's doing is thinking out the implications of his worldview. One in which there was, is no God. Because if there is no God, really, you have no intrinsic value. Your life's pointless. Your children are pointless. And your job is just a pathetic excuse to invent a reason for you to go on living. That's all it is, see? The only way to go on living, if you don't kill yourself is to do whatever you want and exercise power over those who are weak. And that's what those are saying. That's what both men are saying. They are accurately working out the implications of their worldview. Now, you may say, as I know a lot of skeptics do, you know what, you know, that's kind of morbid, right? It's kind of morbid, it's kind of dark. It, it ruins dinner conversation. Let's not go there, right? The picnic on the 4th, we don't want to talk about that. And that's fine, I get that. But I want you to see what you're doing if that's you. You're getting peace by not thinking. You're getting peace by not thinking. It's a false kind of peace. And the only way you can go on is by not thinking out the implications of that worldview. And that's stupid peace. Sorry. But for the Christian, Paul is inviting you to exactly the opposite. You can have peace by thinking about what you believe. Getting it down further. Drinking down to the bottom who God is and what his plan is for your life. So here's now what that means for you as a Christian. If you are a Christian and you say, I believe all that doctrine, all that Bible truth and stuff. 
and you're not at peace. That shows you you're not thinking. You're not thinking. And therefore, if you're not at peace, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? It's an amazing thought here. But that's just the first way peace comes. Peace comes doesn't, excuse me, doesn't just come by thinking first. Peace also comes, secondly, as we're going to see here, by thanking. Not just by thinking, but by thanking. And Paul says, listen, when you pray here, he says, let your prayers come with thanksgiving and make your request known to God. And the peace of God now will come into your life. So he's saying here, the way to peace is through praying, hear this, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Eucharisteo is the word there. Not just praying, but praying with gratitude. So praying here is making your request known to God, putting what you want, your life, your request, into His control and hands, and then thanking Him before anything ever happens. Now that may seem backwards to you. You may think, I thought I was just supposed to thank a person, you know, for a gift when I got it, right? Maybe when my prayers get answered, when something good happens to me, and you can and should do that, but that won't bring you peace. See, the whole point here is about peace. You say, well, why won't that bring me peace? Well, think about it. Thinking after the fact only acknowledges your circumstances. And remember, your circumstances have nothing to do with peace. But thinking beforehand when you pray is less about what happens to you. And it's all about remembering who God is. And who is He? Oh, hasn't He said He is the one who is working out all things for your good. For your good. Who love Him and are called according to His purpose. See, that sounds nice. But most of us don't really believe that. Which is why when we pray, we don't have peace. Some of you have given up on prayer because you think, when I pray, there's no peace. Oh, that's because you're not praying with thanksgiving, with gratitude ahead of time. See, God's promised, if you're his child, to work it all out for your good. Which means this, he will answer your prayer in the way you would have asked it if you had known all along what was best for you. When I was a freshman a couple of years ago in college, just a couple of years back, there was this girl, young lady, and I wanted to marry her. I really did. And I thought I was going to help God answer my prayer for that. Some of you have done that. Some of you are doing that today. Okay. She was nice, a nice girl, pastor's daughter, actually. And I prayed and I asked God for her. And there was only one problem with that. Her name wasn't Carrie Stevens, right? And of course, Carrie Stevens wasn't Carrie Stevens back then, but you get what I mean. All right. And after that, girl and I had been dating for a while. And the answer to my prayer was, no, son, let it go and trust me. And I got hot. I got angry with God. What do you mean I can't have what I want? God, I'm an American. Don't you know where I live? I should get the girl that I want, you know, when I want it. I'm 19 and I know everything about my life. And I live in a 10 by 12 foot dorm room. I own 12 t-shirts. Why shouldn't I be an expert at relationships? No, son. Let it go. Trust me. Trust me. And what felt like six very long years later, Carrie Stevens became Carrie Stevens. Well, what happened? God answered my prayer the way I would have if I knew what he knew. See, But the honest truth was for those six years, I was worried, anxious, miserable, not at peace, and I didn't have to be. As a matter of fact, I told Carrie when we got married, so when I look back at our story and how beautifully God wrote it all along, my only regret about our relationship 
is that I even worried about it at all from the beginning. See, if you will pray with thanksgiving, church, you can have peace. Finally, number three, loving. You can love your way into peace. Because both thanking and loving, in a sense, they're sort of subcategories, points of the first one, thinking. And let me show you what I mean because they're all from this list. And Paul goes on in his list about the kind of things to think about. And he says, as he gets to the end, and he says, whatever is what? Lovely. Yeah. Whatever is of good repute. If there's excellence and something worthy, anything worthy of praise, we'll dwell on that. Well, so what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about things here, this, that your heart loves, right? Whatever is lovely, good repute, it's got a good name if there's excellence, if there's something worthy of talking about and praising, that means giving your affections toward, well, think about that. And as much as he is saying, think about certain things, I believe he's also saying, let your heart go after certain things, which of course is why back in verse 7 he says, peace guards not just your mind, what you think about, the peace guards your heart, what you love. He's saying, hear this, your heart can have peace as well as your mind can. Well, how? It's all in what you find lovely. It's all in what you find lovely. It's all in what your heart loves most and first. In Paul's day, there were basically two kinds of major philosophical thought divided into two camps. One called the Stoics, you may have heard of them. One called the Epicureans. And they had two radically different ways of seeing the world and radically different ways of getting peace or two radically, or through loving two radically different things. And broadly speaking, those two camps still exist today, if in spirit, or in spirit, if not in name. And first of all, the Stoics or the conservatives of their day said this, the way to peace was in essence living a good moral life. They said stuff outside you can change, the culture can change, your circumstances can change. The only thing you can control is your own choice, your own virtue, your own morality. Life's tumultuous, so depend on your own choices, your own heart and goodness, and you'll be fine. You'll have peace. But the Epicureans or the liberals of their day, they said the opposite. They said, your heart wasn't made to be cooped up uh, with discipline. So go after life and pleasure and sex and food and experience. Discipline can't make you happy. Experience, self-expression will, and you'll never be at peace until you let your heart hang out, until you're free to be whoever that you want to be. And into the middle of those two camps of thought, many years later, came a man named Augustine, a brilliant Christian philosopher who had something to say to both parties about peace. He said this, you can't, you should never look inside yourself to get peace or rely on your own virtue for peace because your heart is always letting you down if you're honest. And you can never look outside yourself for peace because stuff and life and circumstances change like the wind and the weather. And so he says, listen, stoic or epicurean or conservative or liberal, if you're looking to something, therefore, that's always changing, whether inside or outside, to bring you peace, either culture or the government or your own morals, you'll always be mad. You'll always be angry. You'll always be crushed because you're depending on those things to calm you down and bring you peace, right? And this is what Augustine said to both parties. He, says, he said this, speaking to both of them and to us today, he said, only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Well, what's that mean? He's saying that our problems come from loving things first that change, 
Loving things that change first. And he means that peace comes from loving the one thing that even the worst circumstances in life only give you more of. If you go, think about this, if you go through the worst thing imaginable today, violent, abusive death, what do you get for it? What do you get for it? The presence of God for eternity, right? See, only love of the immutable brings tranquility and peace. And he goes on in Confessions Book 4, he says, God alone, is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And God will not withhold His love from you unless you withhold your love from Him. And He's right. See, only love of the immutable, something that doesn't change, can't spoil, never runs out, something whose beauty will never fade with time, that thing is what will bring you peace, loving that thing. So we should ask, well, then how, how do we get that? How does that come into our lives, and that's number three, the secret of peace. Paul uses the word. He says there's a secret, and how do we get that? Uh, Because it's not easy, right? Not easy to love that. I mean, go home today when you get home and love the immutable. (laughs) Go ahead, try it, man. Let me know how it goes for you. I'm going to love the immutable. Find the immutable, yeah. And write a paper on it. See, the word is by itself, and in a sense, the the word God is a kind of an abstraction. It's kind of an abstraction. It's a nice thought. But for Paul and Augustine, there was no abstraction. Both men had real peace in tragic circumstances. How? Oh, Paul says this. I learned the secret. I learned the secret. And it's back up in verse 7. He says this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. Where? In Christ Jesus. He's saying, peace. It works like a guard. It comes in my life. When ultimately I thank, think, thank, and love. Not an idea, but a person who's Christ Jesus. You say, how is that? Like this. Isaiah 57, 18 through 20, God says, peace, peace to those far and near, and I will heal them. In other words, God's heart is to bring healing into the world, bring peace to you. But then look at what it says. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mud and mire. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You think, no peace for the wicked? Then what happened to Jesus on the cross? Did he have peace? No. On the cross when he died, what was he? Was he calm? Was he the picture of serenity? No, he was crying out, my God, why have you abandoned me and forsaken me? Does that sound like the sound of a man at peace? No. Then why? 2 Corinthians 5 says this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. We might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lost his peace so that God could bring us now. Those who are far off, God could bring us near and give us secure secure and eternal peace. Jesus, it means, was treated as wickedness for all the wicked ways you try to use others. And you and I use stuff and our circumstances to try to get peace so that now God could accept us and love us and cherish us and bring us home to his heart. See, Jesus never said, I'm content in whatever circumstance I'm in. He didn't say that. Paul did. See, Jesus never said it because he wasn't. He lost his peace, right? He died with a scream losing it so that you can absolutely have your peace today. And that's why Paul says, when I keep my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus, peace grows. 
He's gross. You say, Morgan, that's like a pipe dream, man. That's, that sounds too simple. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Consider the story, final thought. It's a story probably, probably a lot of you have heard if you're a Christian. And if you've heard this before, hang in there. I want to try to draw another point out of it at the end. Consider the story of an American lawyer of the 19th century named Horatio Spafford. Lived in Chicago, lost a fortune in the Chicago fire of 1871 to try to get his family to heal. He booked tickets for his family to go to Europe on vacation. He sent his wife and four girls ahead of him on an ocean liner, but on the way over there, the ship ran into an ocean liner, crashed. The wife and four daughters found each other in the water, but then the waves came. And all four good little Christian girls drowned. The wife was found floating unconscious by the rescue team. They took her, took Mrs. Spafford to England. When she arrived there, she cabled her husband two famous words, saved alone. Horatio immediately got on a ship to reunite with his grieving wife, and as he was sailing across the ocean, he began to write a hymn, began to write a song, a piece of poetry. It's the one we sang this morning and we'll sing again. And it's the most beautiful and moving piece of thought on Christian peace outside the Bible. But look, Look what he's singing about that brings him peace. He said this, we sang in verse 2. My sin, oh the glimpse of this glorious thought. My sin, there he goes again talking about sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh my soul. He says, for me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, that means even if I die. No pain shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. Why would he spend four verses talking about not his circumstances, but four verses talking about sin, talking about death, about the meaning of life? What's he doing? What do those things have to do? What do they have got to do with these four little girls dying? Oh, they've got everything to do, everything to do those little girls dying. Because see, when you suffer, when things go bad, when things go wrong, your tendency is either to blame God or to blame yourself. You think either God should pay for what's happened to me, or maybe I am paying for what is happening to me. But you'll see, if you look at the cross like he did, if you look at it, you'll see God did take the blame for every wrong thing that's ever been done and ever will be done. And God has taken the wrong things you have done. Which means this, no matter what you're going through today, it's not punishment. You can know that. You're not being punished. And as long as you're angry at God or angry with yourself, you'll never have this kind of peace. But when you do what He did, when you think and thank and love your way into peace, when you see the cross, right? Your sin there. And who took it? Peace like a river is yours. It grows on you and in you. It worked for Paul. It worked for Augustine. It worked for this man. It can work for you. It's God's promise to you. Let's go after it now in prayer and worship and the Lord's table as we pray. Lord, we're asking you now for a glimpse, just a glimpse of this glorious thought. Our sin, not in part, but the whole nail of the cross. We bear it no more. Would you give us that glimpse now? If you're here this morning and you're saying, man, I have a distinct lack of peace in my life. I need that today. Would you raise your hand?
many of us. And in some ways, that's okay. The Bible says we should expect attacks on our peace. Expect things to try to come to rob us spiritually. But it also promises we have a guard. We can have a guard. keep it out. Lord, I'm praying for these, their hands raised. Lord, that now peace like a river as they keep their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace would come upon them. Peace in their marriage. Peace with their children. Peace with their job. Peace with their boss, with their money, with their country. Oh, let peace like a river grow in us. In Jesus' name.